Hey, welcome back to the Pop Punk Project. This is episode 11, and I am your host, Keenan. And I'm also your host, but I'm Mike. Oh, is that your name? We're just still riding that high from last week's episode with our good buddy, Tom Mackle. Yeah, that was a blast. Didn't we have a lot of fun? Total blast of fun last week. It was a real fun blast. And from the feedback we've gotten, it sounds like everybody else really enjoyed it, too. Oh, man. After reviewing that feedback, it was mostly negative. We will not be asking Tom back again. No. Sorry, Tom. You had your shot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. On this week's episode, we will be discussing Jimmy Eat World's 2001 album, Bleed American. It's going to be a fun one, Mike. Let's stage dive in. Bleed American is the fourth studio album by the rock band Jimmy Eat World from Mesa, Arizona. The band's comprised of lead singer Jim Atkins. Oh, I get it. Jimmy Eat World. Yeah. Clever, Mike. This guy is huge, Keenan. Have you ever seen him? He must be massive if he's eating the entire world. (laughs) There's also Tom Linton on rhythm guitar and backing vocals. Zach Lind on drums, and Rick Birch on bass, and also singing backup vocals. And this lineup actually has remained unchanged since 1995, when original bassist Mitch Porter was replaced by Rick Birch. Pretty long uh, time these guys have been together, 95 to present. Similar to Green Day, and how those guys have been together almost from the very beginning. It's very impressive. The album was released on July 24th, 2001 by DreamWorks Records. DreamWorks. Love their movies. They're just busy releasing all the music. And movies. And movies. Well, they were the ones that took over All American Rejects last week, too. As we know, the album was originally released as Bleed American, but it was very soon after re-released as Jimmy World, or a self-titled album, following the 9-11 attacks. I imagine that Given what happened on 9-11, Bleed American wasn't a sympathetic title, so I think they probably felt obligated to change it. Right. I had read an interview with Jim Atkins where he basically said they didn't want it to be seen as a political statement or be a reason why people wouldn't want to listen to this album. So they had already had a self-titled album for their debut, but they decided to change it just to avoid any sort of unforeseen controversy. Yeah, I think it's a fair thing to do. It does remind you how right after 9-11, everybody was trying not to offend others. America? We were changing the name of French fries to Freedom Fries and French toast to Freedom Toast. That's what I was going to say. Certain things like changing French fries to Freedom Fries were just not necessary. I think just to be cautious, they decided to change the name of the album at that time, but later changed it back to Bleed American. The album was recorded with producer Mark Trombino. Get this, Keenan. Due to the budget for the record being insufficient, Trombino offered to work for free during the recording sessions. Yep. Wait, he, for how much? For free. Wow. What a guy. Pro bono. He was confident that the album would be a success and that it would be profitable and everybody would get paid at the end of the day, which... Boy, was he right. The album yielded four singles, Bleed American, The Middle, Sweetness, and A Praise Chorus. Each one managed to enter the top 20 
of at least one US chart at the time. So that's pretty impressive to have four singles that do that well. Definitely. I'm impressed. Well, as long as you're impressed, Mike. <laughs> that's why they did it, to impress Mike Moynihan 20 years later. The most successful single, as we know, was The Middle, which reached the number one spot on Billboard Modern Rock Tracks and the number five on the Billboard Hot 100. So that definitely peaked the mainstream charts at the time. Yeah, that song was everywhere and I think has been everywhere ever since. March of 2002, Bleed American was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America, or the RIAA as we like to call them, and it was certified platinum that August after its sales reached over 1 million copies. As of September 2016, which, you know, four years ago, it's probably sold a couple since then. Actually, no, it's probably sold zero since then. Yeah, what? <laughs> Nobody's bought a record since 2016. <laughs> but they just stopped keeping track at that point. It was over 1.6 million. So if I'm being honest with Jimmy Eat World here, to sell a million within the first year and then only 600,000 over the next 15, pretty pathetic. Yeah. Pack it up, guys. Sell the guitars. I guess once iTunes came out, all the moms just bought the middle for 99 cents and didn't bother with the rest of the album. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, moms. They bought that and the last Christmas song. So they're Jimmy Eat World fans, too. And Keenan, as you previously mentioned, in 2008, Geffen Records released a deluxe edition of this album, which contained the original album title of Bleed American, and the first track was restored to its original name, which was also Bleed American. It had been retitled Salt, Sweat, Sugar at the time, just following the 9-11 attacks. Um, that's the first line off that song. So, as it happens, Keenan. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> as, as it happens. July 2001. The hot summer months, Mike. July 5th, right after July 4th, President Bush nominates a brand new FBI director. Seasoned criminal prosecutor. Tell me if you know this name, Mike. Robert S. Moeller. Ring a bell? It does ring a bell. And... I'm glad you brought that up because I've been wanting to discuss this on the podcast for a while. Oh, boy. I have some annotated um, Whoa. excerpts that I'd like to read. You have the the Mueller report. Yep. And this is neither here nor there, but I think we do need to discuss it on the podcast. Okay. Here we go. No, that was the joke. That was my joke. Did you, oh, you was... want to discuss the Mueller report? <laughs> That's a good joke. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was about to cancel our own podcast there. <laughs> my mom was like at Barnes & Noble. She's like, I'm going to get a copy of the Mueller report. She just buys those. Like, She has a copy of the 9-11 commission. She has a copy of the Kennedy papers or whatever. Can you just read these things online for free these days? Yes. Um, she's like, do you want a copy? <laughs> and I was like, I wasn't going to tell her no. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so now I All right. This, that works. Which is mostly just blacked out bullshit. So it's like. How many pages is that? It looks huge. It's all redacted. Um, yeah. 729. It's quite the read. And the last page is about the authors. All they did was just put a bunch of documents together. That's like what we do every week. We're authors. Well, do you want to hear about the author, Mike? He was appointed FBI director on July 5th, 2001. I know we like to refer to our fans as the pop punk posse, but check out this new story, pop punk pit crew. Oh, nice. July 7th, 2001, in his first appearance at Daytona since the death of his father, Dale Earnhardt Sr., Dale Jr. wins the Pepsi 400, coming from 7th with 9 laps remaining, 
Whoa. To take the big chuckers and win all the milk. (laughs) (laughs) And win the milk. Do they just hand out milk to the winner? Is that why they're always just dumping it on their faces? There's one race. There's a race where they kiss bricks. There's a race where they chug milk. Yeah, they do some weird stuff. It's it's very complicated. Do you watch a lot of NASCAR? No. For a sport that's just driving around in circles, there's a lot of stuff that goes on within the races themselves and the culture. I'm not dismissive of NASCAR. I do think it's fascinating. I just I don't have the time to do much of anything with Jack running around all the time. I don't have time to sit down and watch a race for hours. But I do like checking in during the final laps. That's always the most exciting part. And then they just replay crashes later, so you can check that out. I tried to read the rules one time on Wikipedia. Yeah. It's a lot more complicated than you would expect. Very complicated. There were a couple hobbies I tried to get into during quarantine to use my time more productively. And learning how NASCAR works is one of them. I think I read a Wikipedia entry about the pace car and I decided it was too complicated and I gave up. Trust me, it goes a lot deeper than that. (laughs) I'm sure it does. On July 9th, the British version of The Office created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, premieres on BBC Two in the UK. I'm sure you watched the American version, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I love the American version. I did watch the UK version a long time ago because my parents bought the DVDs. Yeah. I haven't gone back and watched it recently. I was never a huge fan of British humor. It's a little bit different than our humor over here. Neither one of them is wrong. Mm. I would argue the British humor is wrong. (laughs) I didn't want to say that. I think if I went back and watched the original series now, I would find a lot more things funny. I would probably understand a lot more. But I think at the time when I was catching episodes here and there, when they were watching and they were howling, laughing, I'm like, what's so funny about this? Maybe it was more adult oriented. I don't know. I don't know. But it was a smash hit and so is the American version. And that's where it had its humble beginnings. Very cool. July 20th, the film Spirited Away was released in Japan. I remember this film being pretty big. Yeah, that was a really popular anime. I've seen it. It's really good. I'm not a huge fan of anime, but I remember that one being one of the better ones I've seen. I know that Shane is a big fan of it. He's the one who showed it to me, and it premiered that day. So, yeah, it was a big one. Listen to this one, Mike. This one's pretty incredible. July 24th, Simeon Saxe-Coburg Gotha, the last czar of Bulgaria when he was a child, is sworn in as prime minister of Bulgaria becoming the first monarch in history to regain political power through democratic election to a different office. So when this guy was a child, his family was abdicated, lost power, and he eventually ran for office and then won. That's so crazy. Usually when a country ousts their monarch, they're usually like shot by a firing squad (laughs) or driven to exile. But this guy stuck around, waited it out, and eventually just regained power the democratic way. I'm surprised there's no Disney animated film about the little czar that got away and then one day would become (laughs) prime minister. I'm sure there will be. What a tale. It's a tale as old as time. There was an animal that helped him escape. A little talking, uh, what's an animal from Bulgaria? Oh, the Bulgarian bear. (laughs) July 29th, Lance Armstrong won the 88th Tour de France. Oh, did he, Mike? Keenan, he did, but... As we would come to find out, he was later disqualified due to the use of performance-enhancing drugs. That would have been his third win if his title wasn't stripped. How do you feel about that whole Lance Armstrong situation, candidly? I really have no room to speak on athletic ability or what it takes to do something, but does taking steroids 
Does that really enhance your ability to ride a bicycle? What he did, definitely. He also won over and over and over again. Like, he's obviously still the best cyclist in the world. Maybe he wouldn't have won all those times. Maybe he would have had some second or third place finishes. But I just don't think that that was enough to propel him to be the greatest of all time. But I could be completely wrong. I think they kind of had to strip him once they caught him cheating. But Oh, I agree with that. I'm also pretty sure that every single cyclist at that time was also cheating, if not a vast majority. So that's the other. He was thing. still the fastest against people who were also doping. So right. it's like baseball. Everybody was using steroids. It's just yeah, pretty much just set a new standard. Yeah. So I don't know. I think he kind of got the shaft, to be honest. But yeah, I'm still living strong to this day. Yeah. Good for you, Mike. Thanks. And how about this for a somewhat topical theme? On July 31st. The U.S. House of Representatives votes to ban human cloning, rejecting it 265 to 162 in a largely bipartisan vote. On the All-American Rejects episode, we were talking about cloning. Dolly the Sheep. Exactly, Dolly the Sheep. We had the headline about Dolly, and we were like, oh, why has there not been any more news about cloning? Well, here's a new story right here. This one deals with human cloning, though. So is the only thing holding us back from human cloning just this Silly little bill that they passed. Yeah. What? That's so funny. Repeal that. I want human cloning. It's just so funny seeing what... I mean, not that this isn't an important issue or an issue that should be on the books, but less than a, a month and a half later, they're going to have a whole lot of more stuff to decide on. Part of me misses the innocence of the times prior to 9-11 when it was just like, uh... I propose we clone humans. Yeah. And it's like, all right, let's take it to a vote. All right, you crazy guy. We're shutting that down pretty quickly. <laughs> Here's a celebrity wedding that month, Mike. July 7th, Charlie Angel star Drew Barrymore, who's 26 years old, weds actor-comedian Tom Green, who is 29. I remember at the time that was a very bizarre wedding because Tom Green was such a weird, controversial guy. And at the time, Drew Barrymore was seemingly a somewhat wholesome actress. And I was like, how did these two ever link up might have seemed weird at the time but looking back it's the exact wedding that should have happened in july of 2001 (laughs) no i agree there's no other sort of marriage that should have happened at that time yeah they were meant for each other they're not still together though right i can almost guarantee you they're not i don't think they are in fact i'm almost positive they're not they're divorced in 2002 (laughs) oh so that that really didn't last long didn't last long at all. Last maybe a year. Speaking of divorces, Mike, later that month, July 16th, actress Meg Ryan divorces actor Dennis Quaid after nine years of marriage. Wow. <sighs> that one hurts. That one does hurt. That one stings a lot, actually. I hope they're both doing well. Dennis, if you want to reach out, have anything to say about this divorce, poppunkproj at Gmail. And that's the news. What a great month of news, Mike. That was great, Keenan. Are there any themes that come to mind with this album, Keenan? Actually, yeah, I did pick up on three pretty key themes throughout the album. And I think the first two actually go somewhat hand in hand. And they involve being controlled by things that are, I guess, seemingly bigger than you or outside of your control. The first one being relationships. And the second one being society, authority, and I guess more broadly, just the country as a whole. And I think Jim and Jimmy World are being somewhat critical or negative in respect to those two things. What we'll see from these songs is that he's very critical about the relationships that he's having at the time. He's also very critical about society and the U.S. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. 
I am curious to hear your thoughts on the country aspect of that because the relationship one to me was the more obvious prevalent theme. A couple songs stand out in terms of country, but we'll get there. Interesting that you tie those two together like that because I can see the similarities. As far as relationships go, a couple of the quick themes that we hear are unrequited love, breakups, cheating, things we've explored before in previous albums. As far as the country in the U.S., there are a couple songs where he seems to be diving into the media and how people are easily manipulated and influenced by the media and also politicians and people in authority, how we're sort of subjects of those types of people. Right. And what's the third? Did you say there was three? Yeah, and the third one was there were a couple songs that go outside of those more negative-sounding themes and are just inspirational or good-feeling songs like living life to the fullest, being who you are regardless of what people think about you. There's also a tribute song in here. It's kind of a death song, which would sound sad, but I think the way that they present it is it's a tribute to these people, so that is kind of a positive thing. But that was kind of the third thing. It was a different type of theme than the first two. I did find this to be a very positive album within this genre. I mean, I know we're going to get to the first two topics at hand that you previously discussed, but there are a couple songs on here that I really just think are very positive and uplifting songs, the likes of which we haven't really maybe seen yet. At least nothing comes to mind. A lot of these songs are real downers, but there's a couple on here that leave you feeling either motivated or happy. Yeah, there's a couple quick pick-me-ups in here for sure. So I think you probably know this album a little bit better than I do. I think you probably listen to it a little bit more frequently in middle school and high school. What are your experiences with it? How did you discover it? I was very familiar with The Middle as, again, this song was a super hit. So I think everybody at the time had heard that song. Even if you didn't listen to alternative or rock radio it probably crossed over into mainstream pop or hits radio and then i also really enjoyed the song sweetness so those were two of the bigger singles off this album my interest in jimmy Eat world really intensified when they released their next album futures and songs like pain and work were constantly playing on mtv2 and i always watched the mtv2 rock video countdown so That's right. i really loved those songs and then I bought the album Futures because of that and then enjoyed that, that I decided I had to start listening to their back catalog. So I went out and I bought, I think within a very close time period, Bleed American, Static Prevails, Clarity, all of Jimmy Eat World's old albums. They were one of the bands that I was really, really into in middle school and high school. I think similar to you, I knew the hits, I knew the singles, I knew them really well. Bleed American, Sweetness a praise chorus, the middle, obviously. I don't think I really explored a lot of these songs that deeply. And some of them I kind of had to remind myself and revisit for this podcast. But I do remember, we've mentioned that one concert we went to as a big group, the Y100 Festival, which was the first concert for a lot of us. It was my first concert. Jimmy World was one of the headlining bands there. Uh, it was kind of this big grouping of famous pop punk bands at the time. And they were one of the highlights. And I remember thinking, wow, they were one of the best bands, one of the best performers there. And so I think that probably inspired me to listen to a little bit more of their music. And that's how I discovered more and more of their songs. That was my first concert as well. As we found out last week, apparently Tommy was going to 
good Charlotte concerts and painting his fingernails yeah. for like years prior. He was like a toddler going to these shows before he even knew about these bands. He's always been ahead of the time. Last week I looked up Good Charlotte setlist from that show and it was non-existent. So I decided maybe there's a Jimmy Eat World setlist on there. Setlist.fm. If I always look there for setlist after shows I go to because it's you kind of forget what you hear sometimes. Yeah. But they did have a setlist from the Y100 Festival back on early December 2004. And I remember Jimmy Eat World being one of the highlights as well. Unless the setlist was incomplete or wrong, they only played six songs. No way. Which seems insane they were the second to last band to perform they were yeah right before good charlotte and then out of curiosity i checked franz ferdinand setlist who was also on that show and they played like 10 or 11 songs yeah i honestly couldn't tell you but i'm inclined to say that that website's probably just incomplete they had to have performed more songs than just six that's how i felt but who knows yeah i don't know that would be pretty incredible I also saw them a second time when they opened for Green Day on Green Day's American Idiot Tour back in September of 2005, I think it was. But unfortunately, we got there a little bit late, so we missed half their set. But still, these guys are pretty good live. Drat. So you probably only ever see six songs that they perform. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and boy, do I love those six songs. And I will say more recently, I know that my brother Shane has been a huge fan of Jimmy World, and he's gotten me to listen to some of their earlier stuff. I had never really listened to anything before Bleed American, and he showed me Clarity a couple months ago. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a lot different from what I remember Jimmy World sounding like. And it was a very different sound, but it was also really good. So I think at some point we'll probably have to go back and listen to some of their earlier albums as well. Clarity is a lot of fans' favorite. It's my personal favorite, and it's one that I'm excited to discuss in the future. Track number one, the lead single of the album... Bleed American, which was changed to Salt, Sweat, Sugar after 9-11, and then changed back to Bleed American. I think this was probably one of the songs you were alluding to when you were discussing criticism or critique of country and the media within our country. Am I correct in that? Definitely. Yeah. 100% correct. Yeah. The first line of the song, I'm not alone because the TV's on. There you go. That reminds me of the 24-7 news cycle, the 24-7 world we live in where... The pundits, Mike. The pundits. They're always talking heads, man. Yep. Back in the day, programming used to end at the end of the night, you know? Mm, not these days. You had a reprieve of yammering coming through your TV, but not anymore. And I think that can actually, that really messes with a lot of people. It does. And they were talking about it even back then. As we know, it's only gotten worse and worse, but they were very critical about the media and politicians and lobbyists and so on and so forth influencing the American people often negatively. And so they had this very strong opinion about it even back then, which is pretty crazy. You said the line about the TV being on, then the following line is, I'm not crazy because I take the right pills. It's just we're being totally influenced and manipulated by all the things around us. Where do the actual drugs end and what we're exposed to within our everyday lives? Where do they begin? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. But it also speaks to just sort of the anxiety and the paranoia 
around all of that happening. Like you had said, we're so affected by all that. And I think a lot of the times we're living in denial of it. I think that's what they're trying to say. We're being controlled to think and to act a certain way. And it's almost causing mental illness because of it. I think going hand in hand with that, it's a critique on society and also how society or I guess the ruling class, what they do to guys like me, everyday Americans. The chorus is salt, sweat, sugar on the asphalt, our hearts littering the topsoil. Tune in and we can get the last call. Our lives are coal. Mm, mm-hmm. This reminded me of kind of like how unions speak. We need unity in our work and we need to stand up for one another. Yeah, we're the rank and file and we're speaking out finally against the upper class. That's exactly what I was getting from it too. And I think this is a commentary on the American worker. We're just the fuel and the fodder of the American infrastructure and industry. Literally, in certain professions like farmers... You're Mm -hmm. pouring yourself into all you do. Your heart is littering the topsoil. And then our lives are at stake in some professions like coal miners. Our lives are coal. So you're just going to work every day. And obviously conditions have improved in coal mines and things are changing every day with that industry. But it's not as dangerous as it once was. I forgot you were an expert on the coal mining industry. Yeah. Yeah, I am. (laughs) And the title is Bleed American. We're literally being bled dry. The song is so catchy and so upbeat that I never really took it as... It wasn't as in-your-face as, say, something like Green Day's American Idiot, you know? A song where they're just saying, F America. And Whereas Jimmy Eat World changed the name of the song in this album because they didn't want to create a fuss or a stir. Still, very powerful words about um, our culture. And one that, I guess, hasn't changed. And I don't see it changing. That's just kind of the way it is. Is that hopeless? No, I think you're right. And I think if it's any testament to times not changing, this is still very relevant today, actually even more relevant today. So no, I think you're right. It's interesting you mentioned that it's harder to pick up on the actual meaning because it's often drowned out by the music of it. I thought the same thing. There's one line and one word in particular, clear your thoughts with Speyside with your grain. I never heard Speyside before. I always just kind of sank through that part. I had to look up what it actually was. I was very confused to see that written down. And it's a single malt scotch whiskey. So he's talking about these horrible living and working conditions for the American people. And then you're just drowning out your sorrow with liquor. It's pretty depressing. We probably weren't too familiar with single malt scotch when we were 12. Oh, I was. (laughs) This just wasn't my brand of choice. But yeah, it's like you drink to clear your mind, turn your brain off for the day drown out your pressures and your anxiety and i don't know alcohol is just a crazy thing man (laughs) it is and really is unfortunately that's what a lot of people face at the end of the day it's like i'm not gonna be able to fall asleep tonight (laughs) unless i just like 
have my single malt scotch. Turn on my sorrows here. Turn on the news that's blasting in my face constantly. Get either pissed off or reassured that I'm correct in my train of thought. Almost similar to like the novel Brave New World and just the people being administered this drug soma that just shuts their brains off and makes them complacent and compliant in the society that's created for them. Yeah, well, there's a lot of futuristic dystopian works that have come out in the last, whatever, 50 years that I think have a very similar theme to this. Pick any one of those dystopian stories or movies and this has that same feeling to it, doesn't it? It definitely does. And one more thing before we move on, Keenan. Going off of what you said with Speyside and not really knowing what that was when you were listening to this album for the first time, here's a misheard lyric that I literally never looked up to correct myself, but I always thought sign up the picket line or the parade was actually sign up so you can smell the potpourri. No, you didn't. Did you actually think that? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's Potpourri is not even like a common word either, which is the weird part. I knew it wasn't that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was one of those lines where I'm like, this probably isn't the line, but I just never looked up the lyrics. Yeah, but I'll just sing it because it sounds like it. Yeah, sure. Sign up so you can smell the Papa Ray. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you put it like that, yeah, I guess that is what they're saying. Yeah. It's funny you picked out that line because I also picked out that line, but for the reason of sign up the picket line or the parade, that's like same thing that they're talking about. Like pick your side. Either you're protesting against the upper class or you're in this upper class parade. Right. I thought that was a really cool one because, like, think about what's happened over the last couple months in the U.S. Like, full of protests, full of people now pushing back against the protests, counter-protests. Right. And there's a pressure to choose your side, so. Exactly. Always. I think we should move on to a happier song. Let's do it, Mike. Track number two, A Praise Chorus. It already sounds happier. Are you gonna waste your time This was one of the songs that represents that third theme I was talking about that's outside of relationships, outside of society. This was more of an inspirational, uplifting song. I think it was a very introspective song for Jim. I think he wrote it about himself. And there are reasons why I think it's about him that we can get into later. But the whole theme of the song seemed to be about living life to the fullest, finding your path in life, even if it feels like it's too late. This song always stood out to me for those reasons. It's my favorite song on the album, believe it or not. Oh, is it really? Can you believe that or not? That's actually unbelievable. Yeah. I've always loved this song. And we're a bit early tonight, but it's also my favorite lines on the album. My tattoo lines. Tats? You're already getting into the tacking. Yep. It's, um... Here we go. We'll put it somewhere. I don't know what's open, but... Oh, I'll tell you what's open. (laughs) I started drawing a diagram, so... Oh, that's what you've been working on. Well, I had Abby send me a naked picture of you, and I've just been doodling on it i can promise you abby's never taken nor has she ever desired (laughs) to take one of those 
<laughs> she doesn't want to break her phone camera. <laughs> warning. Warning. <laughs> the phone just shuts itself off. From overheating because I'm so hot. Okay. All right. All right. I'm on my feet. I'm on the floor. I'm good to go. All I need is just to hear a song I know. I want to always feel like part of this was mine. I want to fall in love tonight. Whoa, that's a long one, Mike. I want to always feel like part of this was mine. I think that's a cool line. I think it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Oh, wait, just that short portion of it? From my favorite line. That's my favorite line of the lines. Oh, dude, that's getting way too meta now. What's your favorite letter in that favorite line of the line? I. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. I think that's applicable to different situations at different points in your life. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. You want to move forward, but you want to leave something behind you want to make a good impression on the people you come across interactions you have so where are you getting this tattoo oh man i'll get this on my chest maybe like this one's on your chest down the center of my chest yeah huge yeah it's a couple lines long so it needs like a a nice open surface is this going to be like your top chest or is this going to be like a long line like a vertical line down the side or maybe three or four lines straight down the middle in between the nipples in between the nipples. Yeah. Okay. Oh, internip is what I call that. Yes, internip. <laughs> in the internip region. Yeah. All right. Literally my cool. chest. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Lock it in. I do like this song, though, and I totally understand why you'd pick it out as your tattoo song. The reason why I think he's specifically referencing himself in the song is there's a line, things are never going to be quite what you want. Even at 25, you got to start sometime. Jim Atkins at the time, I had to look it up, but at the time he was 25 when he wrote this song. So he was trying to inspire you as a listener, but he was also sort of comforting himself like, okay, you haven't really made your mark on this world yet, but you're only 25. Even at this age, you can still do it. He was like convincing himself. He uses the verses of the song almost as a little pep talk to himself. In the first verse, he says, are you going to waste your time thinking how you've grown up or how you missed out? And that just reminded me of being older, maybe having kids or grandkids and them asking you, what was life like when you were younger, Grandpa? And it's like, are you going to say, oh, I just sat around and worried about a lot of stuff and I was concerned things wouldn't work out the exact way I had planned them? Or are you going to have a lot of fun stories to tell? It's a pretty simple answer. Yeah, of course. It's just hard to think of that in the moment things are happening. Right. Totally. Sometimes you need to give yourself that little, all right, you got this. Get out there. Let's do this. What I get from that is like, you want to be actually part of this cool memory. Like, are you just going to be watching the crowd around you do cool stuff and fun stuff? Or are you going to take part in it? Like be present in it. You know what I mean? But he also does this cool comparison to having confidence on like a dance floor to having confidence to achieve your dreams in life. There's a line, I'm on my feet. I'm on the floor. I'm good to go. All I need is just to hear a song I know. So it's like, you're just waiting for that one thing to inspire you to actually get out there and do something cool and fun and unique. You're just waiting for Come On Eileen. <laughs> Me personally? Yeah. Oh man, when I hear Come On Eileen, that's when you that need, dance floor does not song. stand a chance, Mike. Do you have like a wedding or like a dance floor song where if you're sitting down or if you're at the bar, you're like, hold up, I gotta go bust a couple moves on this? Yeah, by Usher. Nice. That's a good one. Mine is YMCA by The Village People. Oh, yeah, that's a crowd favorite. You just like to be part of the crowd with the, the hand motions, yeah. all that jazz. I like making people smell my pits for three hours <laughs> at a wedding. <laughs> but, dude, when Yeah comes on by Usher, the ding a ling a ling a ling, doot 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 doot. Yeah. Literally, yeah. 
Just make you want to dance around a little bit. Yeah. Talk about uh, misheard lyrics. I don't know a single one other than yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the only one you really need to know if you're going to take part. As I mentioned, this is my favorite song. And I'm not sure if you caught on to this, Keenan. I caught on to a couple of them over the years. I never realized the title of Praise Chorus was referring to the second half of the song where they're literally just kind of shouting out songs that they like. Yeah. They list out multiple songs. Yeah. I associated a praise chorus because I found it to be an uplifting song. I thought they were saying this is almost like, and I know chorus and choir are different, but almost like a choral hymn, like an uplifting song you would hear in like a church or something like that. I did make note of the different songs they referenced. So it's Tommy James and the Shondells with Crimson and Clover. That's a great part of the song too. That's my favorite part of the song. It is. And they sing this continuously. The Crimson. They sing that over and over as they go through Mm -hmm. these other songs. Madness, Our House, Our House in the Middle of the Street, The Promise Ring, Why Did We Ever Meet, Bad Company, Rock and Roll Fantasy, When They Say Started My Rock and Roll Fantasy, They Might Be Giants, Don't Let's Start, Don't, Don't, Don't Let's Start, that's the line in the song, The Promise Ring, All of My Everythings, Where Did We Ever Part, and then Motley Crue, Kickstart My Heart, with Kickstart My Rock and Roll Heart. They did it in a way where that just flows like lyrics, and then you see all these songs that went into it, it's like, that's pretty awesome. And all these bands kind of have different sounds and come from different genres. The most interesting one to me was The Promise Ring. Davey Von Bolin, the singer of The Promise Ring and a friend of Jimmy Eat World, they actually sent him a demo of the song and asked him to help them come up with this part of the song. They were kind of stuck in terms of lyrics. Oh, really? And so that's the line, come on, Davey, sing me something that I know. Oh. Yeah. I think they sent him the song saying... You know, just give us some lines we know or something like that. That's so funny. I didn't know that. And so then he sent them back. These lyrics pulled from different songs that I guess he knew what songs they liked and what songs they jammed out to. Some of which were his own songs, which is kind of funny. And so they kept everything in and that that just became the end of the song. And he also sings backing vocals on this as well. That's so cool. I never knew that. That's cool that you say that because we just talked about how he makes this analogy to a dance floor. And all he needs is a song that he knows to come on. Exactly. And it's like, okay, well, let's list out the songs that he would enjoy and would inspire him to actually get on a dance floor. And he's empowered by these songs. That's kind of cool. I never put any of that together until this past week when I was reading through all this. I just thought that that second verse or that whatever portion of the song it is, I thought those were organic lines comprised together by Jim Atkins. But it turns out not only did he not write those lyrics, but those lyrics were taken from other influences that they were fond of throughout the years. He's literally praising choruses. Very cool. Exactly. I feel so stupid. I don't know. I just, I don't I was 12 years old or whenever I listened to this, I'm like, this song sounds good. Yeah. 
We would have never gotten those. And it flows so effortlessly. Maybe that's why I never thought to parse it out because it just sounded like a cool verse. Track number three, The Middle. The Jimmy Eat World song you're most likely to hear at the grocery store. <laughs> I was going to say, the song most likely to be put on by your friend's mom in her minivan. <laughs> Probably the most popular overall Jimmy World song from the record. I believe it was the second single. I think ever, right? Ever. Probably ever. Yeah. I would say ever. I don't think it's even close. They have some great songs, but just in terms of everybody knows the song. If you called your parents up and hummed it, they probably wouldn't know the name of the artist or the song. It's like, oh, I know that one. I think it is the most recognizable from the album. As we mentioned earlier, it did perform the best in the charts. And this was another one that was kind of an inspirational one. So we have two of these inspirational songs back to back. This was almost like Good Charlotte's The Anthem, where they were like trying to pump up kids for being different. And it was all about just not caring what other people think. It doesn't matter what people say about you behind your back. At the end of the day, everything's all right. Right. You shouldn't let others define how you see yourself. You shouldn't let them project whatever sort of feelings they may have towards you and internalize those you should be true to yourself they do a way better job of making it feel cool in the song because i feel like a real loser saying all this <laughs> can you pet me up a little bit <laughs> keenan not everybody hates you <laughs> but are you sure i just want to be liked <laughs> it describes a time in a young girl's life i'm assuming it's a young girl because she's in the middle of this ride this ride we call life and Whoa. they're telling her it's gonna get better you are young and impressionable and you think that everybody's opinion of you matters or that everybody has an opinion of you, which may not even be the case. Yeah. A lot of times it's just in your head. You're over complicating things and thinking, oh, did I, did I look weird today? For you, that's always true. <laughs> did Johnny see me pick my nose in class? Uh, well, I think you're referring to the chorus. It just takes some time, little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Mm -hmm. And I almost likened it to a little girl who's on a roller coaster. Life is like that, where in the middle of it, it seems very scary and crazy. But by the end, you're like, oh, that was fun. And I was overreacting. I was safe the whole time. Definitely. That's what life is. It's a thrill. It's a thrill. Yeah. Remember that it's a thrill and that it feels scary, but a lot of times it's just in your head or it's created by the constructs around you. And when you're on a roller coaster, there's often conflicting feelings of fear, but also jubilation. You're having the time of your life. You're just also on the verge of pissing your pants. <laughs> For you, that's just everyday life, though. But only the pissing the pants part. <laughs> yeah. There's no, no joy in my life. No, no jubilation. <laughs> jubilation. <laughs> Celebration. <laughs> Yeah, I do remember that song from Gwennon. <laughs> I was thinking that too. Is that a word outside a of church or Catholicism? 
I don't even think that's a church song. I think our grade school made up that song and played it in our fake church that we went to. Celebration. Yeah, you mean the gym? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, church gym? The nuns would celebrate their jubilees, which is like their, their anniversaries. That's right. So yep. <laughs> just replace that word with a normal secular word. <laughs> Can we also talk about the music video for this one? Do you remember the music video? It's an underwear party, Mike. Whoa. You remember those high school underwear <laughs> parties, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was me brushing my teeth and telling my parents goodnight and then going to bed in my underwear. <laughs> in your underwear. <laughs> Which was sometimes clean, sometimes not. Yeah, often soiled. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to an underwear party, if I'm being honest. Oh, man. They exist. I think they always waited until I left to start that part of the party. <laughs> All right, Mike's gone. Take off your clothes. <laughs> Jimmy World's performing at an underwear party in high school. It's insane. That's awesome. Yeah, and a guy shows up wearing clothes. What? Yeah, and when he walks in the front door, all the people in their underwear, half of them are like grinding with each other. Half of them are like making out in a closet. As soon as he walks in, the music stops and they all turn and look at him. Because he's the different one. Right. And so he walks around this party in his clothes and everybody's like, you know, they're all partying. They're all having a great time. And they're all just like, who is this guy wearing clothes? <laughs> and at the very end, he finally is like fed up with it, runs into a bedroom, starts taking off his clothes. And he looks across the room. And there's a girl doing the same. She's like aggressively trying to take off her clothes to fit in. And they look at each other. They make eye contact. And the next scene is them wearing their clothes, walking out, holding hands. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's like reversing the classic social constructs of okay it's clearly not normal for people to be at an underwear party right and these guys are weird for wearing their clothes and at the end of it they realized that they weren't going to give in to the peer pressure and they were just going to be themselves which is kind of cool it's the exact opposite of the movie grease where rather than completely altering your true self to fit in with a gang of men boys i don't it's I, that's a it's a weird yeah it's a weird fake high school age yeah and i know a lot of people have some very strong feelings about that movie so that's as far as i'll go but i just don't think that message is as positive as the song in the video you just described yeah it was a cool music video and it also has a lot of people in their underwear so yeah you know. it would have been cooler if a random naked guy showed up to a big party of people wearing clothes and they just called the cops. Well, well that's why it, I don't think it would have made sense. It would have been a little too normal for some creep to show up and be like, hey, where's the party? And his tidy whitey. In that case, you actually are a weirdo loser and you should be ashamed yeah. of who you are. Yeah. Shame, shame, shame. Yeah, no doubt. But it was cool. And I remember watching that video back in the day and that was as close to that type of excitement as you got back then. Well, outside of Playboy the Mansion. That's right, Playboy Mansion, our favorite video game. But it was a popular song, a popular music video, obviously, and it was featured very heavily in pop culture at that time and across all media. It was featured in TV shows. I remember a lot of those early 2000s movies, typically about loser kids trying to fit in. This was a classic song that would play. So you would hear it all the time when you'd be watching TV. And for that reason, I still think it's their most popular song to date. It was a huge song at the time, and it's still, I still hear it on a regular basis today. If we're talking all time pop punk songs, I think this has to be on there somewhere. 
I think it's a good song. It's probably not one of my favorites of all time. I just like other Jimmy Eat World songs better. Same. In terms of cultural significance and actually breaking through into the mainstream, this has to be like we talked about with Swing Swing and then Blink and Some 41, Good Charlotte. A lot of people outside of fans of this genre are familiar with and greatly enjoy this song. So they did a really good job writing a pop hit. Track number four, Your House. Then out of nowhere, they put me right back there. They rip my heart right out. You rip my heart right out. And we know what happens when we get to your house. You rip my heart right out. You rip my heart right out. If you still care at all, don't. So, Mike, have you ever had your heart ripped right out? Not yet. Oh, still time, though. I've had moments where it was tugged at a little bit. The reason I ask is because this song says, you ripped my heart right out a total of 15 times. I counted. Sounds really painful. It also says, if you love me at all, a total of, I think, 29 times, something like that. So as you can imagine, it's not one of the happier songs. It's actually sort of a softer, chill song. Right. But deceiving the themes in it are definitely more depressing i always think of like mortal combat oh you think literally like having your heart ripped out (laughs) like by scorpion or something or something yeah exactly yeah fatality (laughs) that was perfect thanks dude it's a chill song you would think it would be almost like a little love song ditty and your house sounds like a nice that sounds like a nice place for a blossoming relationship Sure. Just hanging out on the couch, watching a movie, young love. But no, not the it's case. really about getting your heart broken by somebody that you care for and the cycle that goes along with it. And I think throughout the song, you hear this cycle of things are good, but she still rips your heart out. Oh, things are bad. Oh, she still rips your heart out. Right. Oh, you give it another shot. Nope. She rips your heart out again. They kind of cover like the cycle of the relationship and at every step in the way, she's going to break your heart. I'm just scrolling through the lyrics, and it doesn't seem like it's getting better. (laughs) No, it doesn't get better. You won't find it getting better anytime soon, Mike. And he also says, if you love me at all, don't call. Yeah, like stop the pain, basically. Right. Stop kicking him while he's down. Well, I have a theory why it's called Your House. I know that he briefly mentions it in the song at one point, but I have sort of another theory why this might be the title. Why is that? A lot of times after a relationship ends, there are physical things that will continue to remind you of that person and because of that will continue to pain you. And one that I always sort of thought of, there have been experiences in my life where I've gotten out of a relationship and I've driven through a neighborhood or through a part of town where that person used to live and I would be flooded back with those old emotions. And so I think your house, meaning her house, is him being pained by this memory of hanging out at her house, staying over her house. Right. These happy memories that took place in this location. Right. I hate those times when 
you just find yourself driving through your girlfriend's old neighborhood and then you find yourself in her old house and you find yourself standing over her her old bedroom and yeah (laughs) please take me back (laughs) i can appreciate your sentiment with that one there are random things that hit you at weird times when it doesn't have to be as in your face as driving by somebody's old house stuff like that can hit you at weird moments like you'll hear a phrase or an expression or maybe see a commercial or a tv show and your brain immediately just like yeah. warps back to little reminders of what once was and they're always painful they're weirdly nostalgic but oftentimes pretty sad and probably suppressed so that's why they come about in right weird organic ways totally yeah you've tried so hard to just forget about it but it's unavoidable how about this line mike i throw away everything i've written you i know that's a short one but that made me think how many times have you written letters to girls you admired or significant others? Did we miss the age of letter writing? We've heard that in other albums. I think we just got to the point where we started having cell phones and we're like, oh, we don't need to write love letters. Yeah. You just fire off you up and it's over. <laughs> yeah. At least for us. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. I think that probably died with the 90s. And I'm not sure how prevalent it was even during the 90s because email is the thing because there are are certain things that replace letters like in the 80s and early 90s you had mixtapes or mix cds and that was kind of it's a different form of letter you know you were still showing somebody how you felt but through a different medium but yeah i think the only time i've written a letter is it's like a short letter to abby that i leave on the dining room table either saying apologizing for something or saying we need this at the store or yeah Hey, can you wash my undies? Yeah. yeah, I don't know the last time I wrote a letter. I'm sad by that because I feel like we missed this cool time to be romancing women. I have commented on underneath women's Instagram photos saying, so hot. <laughs> <laughs> can I look at your Instagram comment history? Is that a thing? I don't know. But I'd love to check that out. I was just out. being fascist. Uh, are you though? Yes. I really, I really am. Okay, give me your Instagram login then. Okay, fine. If you want access to Mike's Instagram login, contact us at poppunkprojectgmail.com. It's funny though, because most of the mail I've sent recently was sending stickers out, Pop Punk Project stickers, to a couple of our fans. And hey, I think you did this too when you were sending yours out. You just write a little note to them, you know, saying, hey, thanks so much for listening. I miss you so much and I still love you. Like and subscribe. Five stars, please. Everybody loves getting mail. That's the thing. All you get is junk mail. So you could kill two birds with one stone. Feel good. Express your admiration or tell somebody, hey, what's up? Hope you've been great. And then they get a nice letter in the mail. I know. I'm saying I want to be a part of that. And I feel like I missed it. I missed the wave. I'll send you something. Please. Track five, Sweetness. My favorite song on the album, Mike. It was such a hard call for me to not make this my favorite song, but the more I thought about it, the more I think a praise chorus 
was my more consistent favorite. Right. But this one, this is an all-time Jimmy Eat World song. Sweetness is so good, and I know it was one of the singles, one of the popular ones, and again, I often kick myself for just picking the popular songs, but this one, when everybody was listening to the middle, and when people were obsessed with the middle, I always preferred Sweetness. I'm the same way, I think. I thought it was a little bit catchier. I thought it was a little bit edgier, too, to be honest, and overall, I just thought it was a better song. The meaning, though, is a little bit more obscure than the middle and some of the other songs. It was harder to figure out what it was about. I was too busy rocking out to it that I never really sat and listened to it. And I read through lyrics a couple times and I actually picked up on something kind of cool. What's that? Well, there's lots of mentions around things being disconnected or uncomfortable. Somebody's not listening to you or singing back to you. You're stumbling, you're crawling, you're running away. And I think it's about being unfulfilled in a relationship and you're trying to find happiness in someone else. And I think the message is, you need to find happiness in yourself first. I don't know. Did you hear that at all? Whoa. I can see some of that. I can hear some of that. I had this weird theory that if you replaced the word sweet or sweetness with love, then it kind of took on that meaning. So, for example, I was spinning free, whoa, with sweet and simple numbing me. And if you change that to with her love numbing me, then it's like, okay, your feelings are altered by your relationship with her, with her love. Also, her sweetness will not be concerned with me. Her love will not be concerned with me. So it's like, she doesn't care about you. It's this one-sided relationship. So you think the ultimate message is love yourself? I think so, yeah. I think it's like, you're trying to find value in yourself by loving this person and you're trying to derive value from them when really you can never do that. Even in the best relationships, you have to be able to appreciate yourself first. And that's one of the things that you hear often these days is like, you can't fully love somebody else until you love yourself. I definitely have heard that one before. And I can definitely see where you're coming from. Definitely, definitely. It, you're right. It is hard because from the time I started listening to the song, the best part is just, Wah! like you don't really listen to the rest of the lyrics. I know. It's so catchy and you just want to sing it's it. It's funny. I reread these lyrics for the first time in a while and... I don't think this is what the song is about, but I came to a completely different conclusion. Okay, let's Can hear I it. run through this with you? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's cool when we both hear two totally different things in songs. I mean, yours is always wrong and mine's right, but yeah, let's, let's <laughs> hear it, Mike. Isn't it cute how Mike always tries to... <laughs> I preface this by saying, unless this was just a complete joke song that turned into a complete hit. So the first verse into the chorus, if you're listening, whoa... Sing it back, whoa. Mm -hmm. String from your tether unwinds, up and outward to bind. Yep. I was spinning free with a little sweet and simple numbing me. So I was reading it and I was thinking, is this just a song about tetherball? 
tetherball. <laughs> yeah. String, string, string from untethering? your tether unwinds. So it's wrapped around the pole. It's unwinding back right. around the pole. Uh-huh. You hit it up and outward to bind to wrap it back around the pole. And then while it's wrapping, it's spinning free. And the sweet and simple numbing me, it's just because you're like Wait a totally minute. stoked that you're amazing at tetherball. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and when you hit it and it's wrapping, you're just kind of frozen there because you can't do anything, right? Right. You have to watch it wrap around yeah. while the other person tries to prevent it from doing so that. So again, I really don't think that was the meaning, but I was like, this could be describing just <laughs> tetherball. <laughs> okay, so let me just recap here. So we either have, in the one hand, about loving yourself and not deriving value in somebody else and being able to be okay with yourself before fully loving another person. And on the other hand, we have Tetherball. And you know what? If this song were released a few years later, it could have just been a commentary on the movie Napoleon Dynamite with those two themes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Hey, Mike, let's split the difference. Tetherball is love. That's true. You can't love someone else until you're good at Tetherball. You can't love someone fully until you play a game of Tetherball together and don't strangle one another. Until you beat them in tetherball. Until you give them a black eye by playing tetherball. It oddly sounds like it could be about a game of tetherball. It's something that we'll discuss later on one of their songs, but I think Jimmy Eat World's a band where most of the time their songs are really deep and introspective and worth reading through, similar to just parsing a poem. But other times it's like they're just fun songs. Do kids play tetherball anymore? Now that I think about it, or are they too busy on their PSPs and their yeah, um, Digimons? Yeah, they're, they're Tamagotchis. Yeah, with their Furbies. I think they must, right? Unless it's some hazard now. But I haven't. I'm going to be honest. I haven't been on a playground in a while, but yeah, I've passed them before. I've driven past a few. I have not seen tetherball in ages. Yeah, the park we go to doesn't have one, but I don't think they make them anymore. It must be too dangerous or something. Like, swings are probably more dangerous, right? Yeah, that's probably true. I don't know. That was a fun game. I don't think I ever played it correctly. It's just like, let's see who can hit it, like... The hardest? The hardest. So you can, well, I, I feel like any time I play I think you're supposed to actually, like, throw it and hit it with your hand. Right. And it's like you volley back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And the point was you would win if you could get it to wrap fully around the pole and stop, whereas right. the other person had to smack it the other direction. But I remember you would get kids who would just grab it and just throw it like wail it and you're like okay dude like I, yeah. I can't prevent that from you're awesome we get it sean kiley you can throw a tetherball really hard yeah sean kiley you think you're so freaking good at tetherball the only reason i'm saying all these camp names is because i remember the tetherball pole at camp that was like yeah. the one place i would actually play it was also fun to try to run up and kick the tetherball that was fun i often yeah. missed the <laughs> charlie browned a couple times track number six hear you me Oh, did I read that wrong, Mike? I'm sorry, Keenan. I can't hear me you. Ah, me hear you now. <laughs> so what would you think of me now? So lucky, so strong, so proud. I never said thank you for that. And now I'll never have a chance. May angels lead you. Go, may angels lead 
All jokes aside, Mike, this is probably the saddest song on the album. I think that's safe to say, Keenan. It's a death song, right? It is. It's a song about death. Do you know the whole backstory? I do now, but this was like a praise chorus. I never realized what it was actually about. I just thought it was similar to the songs we discussed before. Sunny by Newfound Glory, Adam's song. I just thought it was a song Jimmy World chose to compose about the act of passing away and relating that back to something. Right, more broadly about death. But as you mentioned, it was a specific death or a specific pair of deaths that I read and found out about, which did you know about this, the backstory behind it previously? Nope. I had to do research to really figure it out. I always thought the same thing as you. I just thought this could be about a family member or a friend, somebody who died too young and Jim or somebody else in the band just never had the chance to say their final words to them. But there is a story behind it. Do you want to tell us about it? Sure. So it's about a pair of sisters named Michael and Carly Allen. And if you've heard these names before, it might have been because Weezer actually wrote a song about them. They were huge supporters of Weezer from the band's beginning. They were the founding members of the band's fan club. They helped the band do things like responding to fan mail, stuffing envelopes, and shipping out merch and stuff of that nature. While Weezer was recording their debut self-titled LP, The Blue Album, which hopefully we get to at some point, they wrote a song dedicated to the sisters. It didn't make the final album cut, but they performed it live for them, and the sisters loved it. They cried, and it was released in later years on deluxe editions of that album. And so they were not just like, followers of the band or super fans they were friends at the end of the day and um, they passed away tragically in a car accident in 1997 which played a large part in Weezer taking a three-year hiatus at the time weren't they leaving a concert a Weezer concert they're traveling to and from cities I think to follow them on tour or something and Mm -hmm. that's when they lost control of the car and it crashed and they both died yeah so it was a car accident going from shows and then they weren't at a couple concerts members of the fan club that met them at every show started wondering what was up and then unfortunately the news came out that they had both perished in this accident i knew all that about weezer as a pretty big weezer fan i knew who these girls were so you did know this story beforehand you just didn't make the connection to this song I knew Michael and Carly from the song Michael and Carly. I didn't realize the whole story that followed the release of that song because that was three or four years before they actually died. So I think the reason why Jimmy World wrote a song about them is because they were fairly well known within the broader pop punk community as these super fans. And they were helpful to people who would travel from show to show to see bands. They would often allow fans to stay at their house or they would let up and coming bands when they were on tour if they were coming to their city to perform they would let them crash at their house. And the opening line is actually, there's no one in town I know you gave us some place to go, which is referring to their undying hospitality. And so I think even though they were big within the Weezer community, I think all the other bands that toured with Weezer and were contemporaries of Weezer knew their story and wanted to provide a tribute. And so this is Jimmy World's tribute to them. Absolutely. And the title... Hear You Me comes from that Weezer song. The chorus is Hear You Me, Michael, Hear You Me, Carly. So I never put two and two together on that one. It's a cool thing that they did. And I think it's a cool message. And to be able to give them props in such a public way is a really nice touch. But I also think more broadly, the way that you and I listened to this was 
we knew that it was about somebody passing away and and not being able to show your appreciation for somebody or not being able to communicate with somebody because they left too early. And I think even just knowing that, even just hearing that theme is pretty powerful. Right. Before I knew the backstory, I think it's a song that any person could attribute to somebody in their life. You probably told them that you cared about them when they were still here, but you still might want to make sure they understand that because sometimes we say these things in passing. Me personally, I'll say, I love you to like my mom or my dad and not really actually stop and think about it. It's just something I say. Yeah. And so this song always made me think other than thank you, like what would I want to say to somebody if I had one more chance to speak with them? And I really don't know. It's not something that's worth putting too much thought into just because it's not really a possibility. It's kind of dark in a way. It is a nice reminder to tell people how you feel when you have the chance. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good message. So If you guys are out there and you have a grandparent or a parent or a sibling that you haven't spoken to in a while, pick up that cell phone, shoot them a message right now. Trust me, it's worth it. To end on a lighter note, Mike, this is the song that is very reminiscent of another song within the pop punk genre. This song's intro and first verse is oddly similar to Switchfoot's song, Dare You to Move. You remember that one, right? I do. I love Switchfoot. I think out of all the ones that I've done so far, all the comparisons that I've made throughout all the episodes, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong about this. I hope people don't disagree, but this one I think is the closest comparison yet. They sound almost identical at certain points. I think of all the smart and awesome observations I made, this is the smartest and awesomest. You're correct. I can hear the resemblance. Remember what they were saying about like not bullying and like, being who you are and like not it doesn't matter if like people are mean to you and sorry keenan you weren't invited to the naked underwear party i was invited to naked underwear parties they were the best here's a little trick that you might not have thought of there are two versions of dare you to move they're pretty similar but i wonder which one sounds more like this song I'll find the one that's most similar and I'll put it right here. Welcome to the planet. Welcome to existence. Everyone's here, everyone's here, everybody's watching you now. We'll let you guys be the judge, but uh, something might be a foot here. A switch foot. Oh, yeah! Nice one, Mikey. 
Track number seven. If you don't, don't. Pretty simple. Sounds like a simple message to me. Or as I like to call this one, Mike, the friend zone song. You know a lot about that. <laughs> Just kidding. I would actually know a lot about that. Don't you know I'm thinking? You know I'm thinking. The reason that I say it's the friend zone song, Mike, is because I think the whole message of this, at least what I got listening to it again, was Jim's confessing his love for a friend and it seems like it's unrequited. And he's doing all these really nice things for her and he's reaching out to her and he's telling her how he really feels and she clearly does not feel the same way. It's funny the lines that stood out to you, I brushed over and focused in on different lines and that gave me a different story within the song i was focusing on the different locations that he talks about like in one line he's in la on the 405 another he's in nyc at the miracle mile then he's back home in arizona and i thought oh this must be a relationship that's like long distance or he's traveling a lot well i think it actually combines both of those things right but the main theme is that this dude's a loser (laughs) yeah essentially well not that he's a loser but Just that he's stuck in a one-sided relationship and she unfortunately doesn't feel for him the way that he feels for her. Does she not feel for him or does she not even know that he feels this way? He writes her letters about her whisper and her smile, right? So is he telling her these things like these weird creepy things like your whisper is very nice? That's a good point, Mike. I'm not entirely sure. I could have sworn that he was essentially explaining to her his feelings, at least in one point of the song, but... You're right, maybe he's just feeling these things and keeping it to himself because he's worried about what her reaction would be. And there are lines that point towards that, like, early in the song, we once walked out on the beach and once I almost touched your hand. Okay, that's like, I want to do something more than just be friends. But getting back to the location piece that you mentioned, Mike, it is interesting. We were talking earlier about how they make a lot of specific references in their songs. And this is definitely one of the songs where that's the case. A lot of times they mention things that are only probably known to them, like locations and people. And he kind of goes through a handful of them in the song. And I found myself, I don't know about you, but I found myself on almost a scavenger hunt. I was on Google Maps and Google Earth trying to find them. Did you do the same thing? Not to that extreme. I just Googled Jimmy Eat World and then the, the place I was looking for. Oh, really? That's less fun. I'll explain. So... There's three primary locations in this song, Los Angeles, New York, and Arizona, right? The one line is, don't you know what I'm thinking, driving 405 past midnight, refers to Interstate 405, which is a major highway through Los Angeles. I knew what the 405 is. We hear about it all the time. There's awful traffic. There's no public transportation in LA. People on the West Coast love to complain about it. The second one was the Museum Mile, which is a strip along Fifth Avenue in New York 
that has a bunch of different museums along it. Central Park's right there. So I'm imagining Jim Atkins just sitting on a bench in Central Park writing to this girl. So the two locations that I was unfamiliar with are the ones that refer back to their home state of Arizona. Ninth and Ash on a Tuesday night, which is an intersection in Tempe, Arizona, where a bar called Casey Moore's Oyster House is. I guess the band used to frequent it, or that's the tale? I think they used to perform there. There would be open mic nights there on Tuesday, and they mention Ninth and Ash on Tuesday night. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so it was this reference to a place that they used to perform when they were up-and-comers in their hometown. That's a memory from a simpler time between the two people in this song. Yeah, and then the other one that I think you're getting to is up the stairs at the Weatherford. The Weatherford Hotel is a historic hotel in downtown Flagstaff. And so going back to what these locations mean, I think to Jim, these were four locations where he had a very powerful memory of this girl, or he felt like he had some connection to this girl through these places. So he's writing letters to her from one of these locations. Maybe they went on a date. Maybe he met her when he was performing at one of these places. And so she might not know how significant they are, but to him, they're very, very important. And so it's cool that he threw those in there. Similar to a praise chorus, similar to another song we'll get to shortly, I haven't had to quote-unquote research lines like I have for this album, even down to having to figure out what Speyside was. There's very specific references and yeah. deliberate lyrics that are used that I think is really cool. It's almost as if they wrote these songs just for themselves and their friends and their close community because you wouldn't know these references unless you were close enough to them. Right. So it does require some digging, but I do like that we're finding out these cool meanings that we never knew before. I like that too. It adds some value, doesn't it, Mike? And we'll never forget it now. Nope. We'll be talking about it at the next underwear party. (laughs) (laughs) Track number eight, Get It Faster. This is definitely the most badass song on the album. It's a heavier sound that I don't think we hear on any other song on this album. And it's almost a departure for Jimmy Eat World as a band, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. It's really powerful compared to the others. It's what I would describe as more of like a, like a hard rock song. It's just a good rock and roll song. It also starts way differently. It almost starts like a horror film, kind of like thriller almost, like Michael Jackson's Thriller. The verses are, we've talked about songs like this before, but they're slow. Jim Atkins' voice is almost at a whisper when he's singing the verses. Yeah. And then the chorus just explodes, which I think is really cool. And the song itself is about a guy that's cheating on his girlfriend or his wife. Yeah. It's clear that's what it's about. The one thing I couldn't quite figure out, though, was, was he saying, like, 
it's okay to cheat in some situations where you're in a bad relationship and maybe you're unfulfilled. And so sometimes the last resort is cheating or is he making fun of people that are like that? Because I did hear one line that I thought was almost sarcastic when it says, I'm getting out. No, nothing ever shames me. I'm going out. I don't care if you're angry. That's like a classic, this guy with too much ego, too much bravado, doesn't care about women. He's a misogynist. Like, is he making fun of that type of person? I'm not sure. I kind of put it more in a just telling a story, not necessarily a personal reflection or a personal opinion, but saying, here's a story of a relationship that this guy is essentially imploding. Like, he's reached the point of self-destruction, and he feels no shame. He feels no remorse. He doesn't care if you're sad or angry. He doesn't care if he hurts you. Sometimes you reach a point where there's no going back, and you're just like, I'm here, so I might as well just like keep burning this thing to the ground. So he's at rock bottom, and cheating is a way to essentially channel those weird feelings and emotions. That, and there's also the line which I found interesting, which kind of turns all of that on its head. The line that says, I want to do right by you. I'm finding out cheating gets it faster. So he realizes that he's not good enough for this girl or this woman, and he's not ever going to be enough for her. And she maybe deserves better and actually deserves some sort of future. The only way he's able to do right by her is completely remove himself from her life. And so he's speeding up the breakup process, what you're saying. Yeah. He's given her a reason to get out and leave him. Like he could be interesting, a loser piece of crap, but she still loves him and stands by him. So really the only way he can free her from him is to cheat on her and make no doubts about it. Like let people yeah. see you out with other girls and let your, her friends know that she's being like made a fool of. So that'll speed up the process. That'll help her actually be able to assemble some sort of a decent life without him, which I thought was kind of interesting. I like your analysis. That's a cool take on it. You mentioned that musically it's one of the cooler songs on the album, Mike. I agree. And it has one of the best guitar riffs, maybe in all of pop punk, definitely one of their best guitar riffs in my opinion. Agreed. Can we listen to it real quick, Mike? Sure. Not sure if it's the bridge or if it's just a quick interlude, but it's really dope. Here it is. When I hear this song, having been somebody that never played the real guitar, I just think that would be awesome to rock out on Guitar Hero. Yeah, it would. I wonder if they have it on there. I'm going to check later. They might. They had a lot of deep cut kind of songs from different bands. Track number nine, Cautioners. Steps away with hesitation. 
Another slow song. When I listened to the song again, it actually reminded me how many slow songs were on this album. I think it's almost one-to-one, like, upbeat pop-punk songs and slower, sadder songs, perhaps? Almost one-to-one, I'd say. Jimmy Eat World does do a lot of slower songs, and for the most part, I really like their slow songs. And this one's no exception. This is like a slow burn ballad type of song that some pop punk bands might attempt to do once. Jimmy Eat World does it over and over again, and those are some of my favorite songs by them. I'm thinking Goodbye Sky Harbor from Clarity, Polaris, and 23 off of Futures, and this song. Those are all awesome songs that are just these slow ballads that Jimmy Eat World writes. Is this your favorite slow song on the album? I think as a whole, yes. There are different bits of each one that I appreciate, but as a whole, I think this would be the one. Can I tell you what I think this song's about, Mike? And you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Sure, because if I'm being honest, I don't have much of a concise thought myself. I thought it was about how he was admiring somebody from afar. Like, it might be the case that this person doesn't even know who he is, but he just appreciates them, maybe has an emotional attachment to them, I almost got stalker vibes at certain points in the song. Like this line in particular, I watch you go from left to right. I follow you all night across my blinds. Is that him staring at somebody through his window and he's creepily taking them in? As I read through the lyrics, I can definitely see that perspective. I didn't put the creepy twist on it. I thought of it as you and somebody you care about sitting in like a dimly lit room at night and you're watching them pacing back and forth in thought or in conversation and you watch their shadow across the blinds back and forth and it's called cautioners and so i was thinking maybe this is a cautionary tale like he's warning other people about this creepy infatuation that he might have could it be a creepy infatuation or a creeper or like you said you do earlier when you drive past x's houses and just stand there outside hoping to catch a glimpse of them could be that too so maybe it's about like an x significant other right because the second verse says i'm making my peace i'm making it with distance maybe that's a big mistake you know i'm thinking of you i miss you i don't know there's still a creepy aspect of it where it might not be a stranger it could be an ex and she doesn't want anything to do with him so he's kind of just looking in on on her life without him and seeing is she happy still creepy just a different kind well it could be creepy like he can't let go of these feelings or maybe it is just that like he's trying to come to grips with it and he's checking in on her. Yeah, I'm okay with either. Track number 10, the authority song. Uh Uh-oh. Back to this comment on society, Mike. I really like this song. I think this is one of the more underrated songs in the album. The intro was almost like a Bruce Springsteen song. It was like an old school rock song, you know? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I listened further and read more into it that I realized he was referencing 
the John Cougar Mellencamp song, The Authority Song, which is very much like an old school Bruce Springsteen type rock song. The intro kind of reminds me of that John Cougar Mellencamp song, I grew up in a small town, or even like Jesse's Girl. Yeah, I think it does sound like all of those songs. And I think this song is an homage to those. He actually goes through the song and he references several different artists that I imagine he is influenced by. And when I dug a little bit further, Mike, this was another one where I kind of went down a bunch of rabbit holes, but he mentions artists that were typically anti-establishment, anti-authority, sticking it to the man. He talks about, as we mentioned, John Cougar Mellencamp. There's a line that says, the DJ never has it, J-A-M-C Automatic, which is a reference to the Jesus and Mary chain and their third album, Automatic. They were very much like a Scottish rock anti-authority band. Then there's another line that says, you bet he'd play what goes on. That's a reference to the Velvet Underground song, What Goes On. Again, another stick it to the man. Like, I think this was kind of their subtle jab at authority, but also a tribute to their influences that are also anti-authority. I like that take on it. Mine was (laughs) completely different, but I think they can both be right. There's the opening line, it's how the hustle goes, see what the jukebox knows. So you go into a bar or like, a restaurant or whatever you go to the jukebox what do they got in this thing what songs am i going to put on and these are their go-tos john mellencamp jesus and mary chain velvet underground i didn't make the connection of anti-authority which i think you have something there i thought of it as the band saying that sometimes it's okay to write a song just to write a song they say honesty or mystery so Do you want Honesty, which is a song with no ulterior motive, or Mystery, a song where there's hidden messages, listeners dissect it, such as ourselves, so shots fired. (laughs) But then... Wow, not cool. There's no secret purpose. I don't seem obvious, do I? So it's just like, no secret motive behind the song. There's no secret meaning. We just wrote a catchy song, similar to a John Mellencamp song, where it's just a catchy song that gets stuck in your head. I remember that quote that's attributed to Sigmund Freud sometimes a cigar is just a cigar where you can find symbolism in everything if you're looking for it but it's also okay to take things at face value again after hearing what you say I think it could be that I don't know if I'm reading too far into this song that I think is about not reading too far into songs (laughs) oh it's starting to hurt my head yeah (laughs) in my mind I was like they're talking about the jukebox so they're just shouting out their heroes and it's like Sometimes it's okay just to write a cool song that you want to put on in a bar. Sure. And it doesn't have to be about never telling your friend you loved her in flagship Arizona. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I like that analysis. Oh, man, you had me down some crazy meta rabbit hole in my own head there for a second. Same. (laughs) You you look like you just hurt your own brain there. (laughs) (laughs) It just glitched. I think this is another like hard rock song. It's almost like... Get It Faster. Get It Faster, I think, was a little bit weirder. Mm -hmm. This one, I think, was just a little more like, let's just rock out, boys. Right. It's the perfect song to put between Cautioners 
and the next track, which is another slow one. Yeah, one more upbeat jam before a slow and sad conclusion. Which brings us to track 11, the final track of the album, My Sundown. Their final slow song, Mike. Their final goodbye. I need you to show me the way from crazy. I wanna be so much more than this. Off the top of my head, they usually end their albums, at least the albums that I love and familiar with, with a slow song like this. And this is one that I've always enjoyed, but I guess I never really read through the lyrics closely. And when I did, it was kind of baffling to me because I heard both positive elements and negative elements, and I wasn't sure which way I was supposed to take it. Like some of the lyrics were positive. With one hand high, you'll show them your progress. And then the next lines were negative. You'll take your time, but no one cares. Right. So it's like, how am I supposed to feel? What do you think? Do you have some sort of thought process on this? Some, to borrow Jimmy Eat World's former album, some clarity you can provide me? Mike, that was incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I think you put that in a very interesting way. And I agree with you that there are positive and negative elements to it. But you don't have to necessarily make it one or the other. I think you can accept it as both positive and negative. Why not both? So I think that's what they're getting at. Like there are positives and negatives to all the themes that they discussed. And so the way that I heard it, to try to tie this up neatly with a nice little bow, I think the song is open to interpretation. But if we're following on the two major themes of the album, relationships and society, and to use some of their lyrics here, where they say, I say my goodbyes, this is my sundown, I'm going to be so much more than this. I think what he's saying is, he set his piece on those topics, and for the relationships, he's probably saying, you're better off without this person. I can be so much more than this person, they were holding me back, I'm ready to spread my wings. And then as far as society and country, he set his piece on anti-authority, anti-establishment, he set his piece on what he sees in the world around him, and he doesn't know if it's going to get better, if it's going to get worse, but he doesn't view it in the best light today. He's hoping for the best, but he's not sure if it's going to get better. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think of my analysis? I thought that was solid. I read the lyrics a couple times and wasn't really feeling a consistent theme or consistent feeling, which usually you read these lyrics or you listen to these songs and you think, oh, this song's about this. Right. This one wasn't like that. No, like I said, I think this one's open to interpretation. Yeah, I think exactly. You can associate it with whichever one of these themes you want to. It doesn't even have to be a theme of the album. You can just think about something in your own life. Right. And then there's one more line that I want to ask you about. There's a line 
one hand high. Do you have any idea what they're referring to? Like with one hand high, you'll show them your progress. That line sounds like it should be referring to something very specific. And yet I couldn't think of anything it would be referring to. I thought it was like fist in the air, like fight the power. With one hand high, you'll show them your progress. We're in this together. Chant with me, march with me. Gotcha. But then right after that, he says, you'll take your time, but no one cares. So we're going to give it our all here. But at the end of the day, this was sort of this pessimistic view of he doesn't see things around him getting better anytime soon. That's what I got from it. I'm happy you pointed that out now because I did have some think around that. And that's what I got out of it. I was thinking, since I couldn't really come up with another good idea about this song, what if it's just about the nerd in class who is always raising his hand and always knows the answer. So you're showing them your progress, but no one cares because you're just a loser and they just want you to shut up. <laughs> Are you talking about yourself right now? No, I never knew the answers. No, but you were the guy who's raising your hand like, uh, excuse me, uh, Mrs. Walsh, she forgot to assign the homework. No, I would never. <laughs> yeah, you would. I was the guy that did Latin homework on the bus ride in the morning. Oh, please don't bring back those PTSD memories. I'm still like that. Everything I can just do that needs to be done over the course of hours or days or weeks can be done for the 25 minutes right before it's it's <laughs> due. What I liked about this album, Mike, that I think was a little bit different from other things that we've listened to so far was the tempo of the songs changed a lot more than other albums we've heard. We had mentioned earlier that slow songs to fast songs on this album was pretty much one-to-one. -one. We never really get that. We don't get a lot of bands that are that introspective or that willing to change their sound to get across a particular message. That's what I thought was pretty cool about this album and significant. It was also a different sounding album than their earlier albums. I don't know a lot about albums before this one, but what I do know is that they changed their sound drastically coming into this one. I think Jim Atkins actually went on record and said that with this one, he experimented a little bit more. He wasn't just throwing in sounds to get different sounds, but he wanted to try out more sounds that he thought would get his emotions and his feelings across better. I thought that was a really cool way to approach it. He did a great job of that because the middle aside as being this standout super track that has been one of the biggest hits of all time for any pop punk band. This album was very commercially successful and approachable for fans of the band that might have been new fans. Like this was a great place to start if you were interested in listening to Jimmy Eat World. And like I mentioned earlier, I went back and listened to older albums and they were more raw and more rugged and not as polished as these songs, which is fine. I like them both ways. Yeah. But similar to what we discussed with All American Rejects in terms of their self-titled album being very approachable and enjoyable for a lot of different groups of people, this is 
similar. A lot of different people could enjoy this, whether you're where we were in life or an older individual, preteen, girls, guys. There's a lot of themes on this album that are all-encompassing for all walks of life. I listened to this when I was 12. I listened to it when I'm 30. And I still get the same like positive feeling that I get from songs like Praise Chorus and The Middle as I did when I was 13 and actually thinking, I am going through a tough time right now. So that consistency, I think, is universal with this group and with this album. There were songs that we also had very similar opinions on and very similar feelings about. And it was mostly the ones that were the popular ones, the ones that we remember from back in the day really well, like The Bleed Americans and The Middle. We kind of knew what those were about. The ones that are a little more obscure and underrated, this is the first time that we actually kind of went in separate directions on meaning, things that we were hearing, things that we were feeling. That's the first time that's happened, which I think is really cool. A little bit unexpected too, but it was great to hear how you heard it differently. Right. And it wasn't even like I disagreed with what you were saying. I just took it from a completely different angle. You said this was about apples and I said this was about oranges, which I thought was pretty cool. And It kept it fresh. It kept it interesting. I felt like I was learning some new things on the fly too, which was cool. The final piece is this was also one of the only albums so far where as I was doing research and as I was listening the last few days, I was finding myself going down rabbit holes and really getting lost in the locations they were talking about, the themes they were talking about. Fallout Boy may have been another one where a lot of the band's lore and a lot of the band's stories were taking me on some kind of crazy twists and turns. This was another example of that happening. Yeah, Fallout Boy was the only other album that we've discussed so far when I had to search online for the names of places or streets or things of that nature. I didn't have to do as much digging as I did for this one. And it could have been to find an awesome tidbit like, oh, actually, David from The Promise Ring sings backup vocals and essentially wrote half of my favorite song on this album. But still, it was cool finding out that information. As you said before, it was a little scavenger hunt through the mind and times of Jimmy Eat World. First Jimmy World album down. I'm excited to explore the others. They have a lot of material, Mike, so I feel like we do have a lot more to explore. They do, and they're one of the bands that I've kind of kept up with in recent years. Good, so it'll be kind of fresh in your mind as we go through it. The newer albums I would like to listen to more because I definitely haven't listened to them as much as this album and other albums I listened to when I was younger. But we'll get there. Next week, we're going to discuss a band that I'm actually shocked we haven't gotten to yet. I think we were holding off on this one because we wanted it to be a little bit special. And we may be joined by a special guest for this one. Episode 12 will be Yellow Cards, Ocean Avenue. That's big for me as a violinist, Keenan. That is big for you. The band that made violinists finally look cool. (laughs) Let's find out who the true rock stars are. Catch us online. Just make sure you get your parents' permission first. 
at gmail.com, poppunkproj, that's P-R-O-J, Instagram and Twitter at poppunkproject, and patreon.com slash poppunkproject. That was a blast, Mike. I hope you all had a blast, and I hope you had the time of your lives. Good riddance. Peace out, posse. Mm-hmm.